Okay, I'm, I'm sorry it's a bit uh, disjointed today, but what we did here, um, which was very nice is, yeah, it was actually very beautiful. Um, for the congregation, we had our Jatmasami last night. And because it was Prabhupada's Vyas Puja, we had Vyas Puja in the morning. And uh, we cooked uh, 108 preparations, and uh, it was just a wonderful program. My sadhana here is very beautiful, you know. I even go to bed at 9, I get up at 2. I go in the temple, and I walk for 45 minutes and chant. Then I come back, and I write. Then I go take a shower, then I come back and study the Bhagavatam. Deity worship, then we have Japa Seminar, then we have a class, usually, but not today. So I think what we'll do today is um, I'll speak something until 7.30. And, the, you know, the first realization I have, and I'll have to share this with you, is I think one of the most important things at least for me in in speaking is is really being in the mode the proper mode um because i think that gives you access to your memory so i'm in a different mode today because it was late at night and then the feast and then getting up but uh let me see if i can pull out some notes and i can finish what i did anyway I'm Okay. Um, Om Ajnana Timurandasya Gananjana Shalakaya Taksur Unmalitam Yena Tasmai Sri Gurave Namaha Sri Chaitanya Mano Bishtam Snapitam Yena Bhutale Sayam Rupa Kadamayam Dadati Sapadantikam Vansha kalpa turubhyas cha kripa sindhu bhaeva cha patitanam pavanebhyo vaishnavebhyo namo nama. Sri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Siyadvaita Gadadhar Srivasa Degor Bhakta Vrinda Hare Krishna Hare Krishna 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 Hare 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 Rama, Hare Rama, 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 Hare Hare. So, I don't know if I finished this, but yesterday I was able to finish the story of Krishna's birth. Um, and uh, You know, I, I asked this one question, Brahmananda Prabhupada's dear disciple. He had told me that once Prabhupada asked him, what's the most important verse? What's the most important verse in the Gita? Now, when someone like Prabhupada speaks a great Acharya, their mode of speaking is really, it's called context relevance. They're speaking in a context. Like, for example, one time Prabhupada said, someone asked Prabhupada, are, uh, uh, you know, are, you know, are your devotees pure devotees? Prabhupada said, all my devotees are pure devotees. So obviously, in one sense, all Prabhupada's devotees are not pure devotees. If you're understanding it in kind of a Western reductionist terms, that the statements that are made are applied universally, but they're not. They're applied to, in a context, and Acharya speaks strongly. Prabhupada was speaking um, in the context of in the context of someone asking him a question and questioning the 
if Westerners can be, you know, Vaishnavas. So Prabhupada spoke very strongly in a particular, in a particular, um, in a particular context. I, I can see I'm, I had so many thoughts to follow this and now they're gone. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, so let me, um, I'm very frank when it's, um, I'll start again. Wow. Anyway, um, so we'll start, you know, basically just finishing up the story of Krishna's birth. Um, hmm, I had some point to make. Um, okay. Well, I'll just start someplace and we'll see where it goes. I really wanted that point. Anyway, when, when Prabhupada was talking about um, in the purports, he made a very interesting point that Krishna's birth is historical, but it's also symbolic. That Devaki's womb represents bhakti. Why? Because bhakti is where Krishna appears. So in Devaki's womb, Krishna appears, she represents bhakti. Um, <clears throat> So she appears, so Krishna appears in, in, in there. Okay, then, and then um, Kamsa represents fear. So what is the relationship with bhakti and fear? The relationship between bhakti and fear, it prophesies even a pure devotee, what does he fear? He fears material existence. <laughs> if you want to have bhakti, you want to have bhakti, you have to fear material existence. And that fear of material existence will liberate you from material situations. I think our problem, and I'm going to be very frank, I think it includes me, I'm, I'm not enough afraid of material existence and material association. And I know what, what, what is the problem that the devotees have with, with social media and politics and so many things. We, we, we're, we're, we're not afraid enough of association. Bhakti is based on association. Sadhu Sangha, Sadhu Sangha, Sarva Shastu Hoi, Lava Matra, Sadhu Sangha, Sarva Siddhi Hoi. A moment of Sadhu Sangha. And what is Sadhu Sangha? Sangha association. It just doesn't mean being with a person. It means intimate exchanges with a person. So what are the intimate exchanges with a person? They're, they're mentioned. There are six intimate exchanges favorable for devotional service, but they can be executed in any type of intimate relationship. The dati pritagrinati, you give gifts and you accept gifts. Guyam atyachi prichati, you inquire in confidence and you, you learn. Teach your student, and you give and take pasadam. And what that creates is that creates a conduit between your heart and others. So the secret of advancing is your association. And when you want to go from Kanishta to Madhyam, you have to change your association. And you see this, this is how it works in bhakti. If your association is, what happens as devotee is your association changes to higher and higher quality of people that share your values. And when you associate, and that conduit of heart, because 
once you have intimacy in those kind of loving exchanges, opening your heart, what is in another's heart comes to you and, and it affects you. And what's your heart comes to them. So ultimately, Sadhu Sangha, Vaishnava Association means um, ideally, first class Sadhu Sangha means those who are more advanced and also those who are like minded and sneha. And there's affection in that relationship. So we, we can go from Kanishta to Madhyam. And, and I, you know, I think in, in uh, my own sharing of Krishna consciousness, one thing I really try to do is, is within this group of devotees, create community so that people actually have that kind of Sangha. I know in the Jaiva Dharma, um, Yeah, that was another point in Jaiva Dharma. Anyway, back to, so, so that fear, that fear, not an advanced devotee, he has that fear. And what does that fear do? The fear increases your association and diminishes the, the, ill products of the mind. There are six ill products of the mind. The six ill products of the mind are anger, lust, greed, anger, lust, greed, illusion, madness. Maybe I think it was lethargy or something. So it's symbolic. Devaki, where Krishna's birth, but where's Krishna's birth going to take place? Where our fear of material existence <laughs> eradicates our lust and where that will bring us. Someone follows his lust, why do they wind up depressed? When you follow your greed, why do you wind up depressed? When you follow your anger, why do you find you wind up depressed? Because these kind of conceptions are born from the false conception of the self based on the body. And it fortifies that conception. <clears throat> and, and therefore, in the in the Bhakti Sandarbha, the main verse that's given to illustrate the Abhideya Tattva, the means of realizing the absolute truth, is, is Ishad Upe Tasya. God, you turn away. And how do you turn away from God? God is everywhere. You can't, you can't turn away from God by turning your head, you turn your consciousness. You don't want God. And God, Nityo Nityanam, Chaitanas Chaitananam, Yobid, Nityo Nityanam, Chaitanas Chaitan, Yobid, Nityo Nityanam, Chaitanas Chaitan, Eko Bhunam, Yobid, Dati Kaman. The one, he satisfies your desires. So you, when, you, when you don't want God, then you're covered from him. So you're asmriti, you're forgetting God, Viparyo, that puts you in illusion. You have to have some other identity. And if you forget God, then your identity is enjoyer and controller. I'm the body. And then what happens? From that arises this fear and duality. So much fear. And our hearts are not satisfied and we're in fear because we're constantly threatened with non-existence. 
You know, yoga means to reside in the self. And when I do the japa, the japa meditation seminars here, when I do the japa meditation seminars here, they're very, very powerful just in the atmosphere. And then at the end of the seminar, and it's basically people chanting and they're feeling something and I tell them to feel gratitude because the first symptoms of our true self, not our false self, our true self, the first symptoms are gratitude and, and, and compassion. Our gratitude, compassion, humility, devotion. So there's some feelings of gratitude. And when there's gratitude, there's a desire for service. And I somehow tell people to live in that with the holy name, hearing the holy name as your gratitude. And I tell them what perfect yogi is, is their mind is concentrated. And then people, they really understand the difference between that consciousness and what goes on in the mind, born of the false ego, our desires, our, our ambitions, our, our anger, and so many other things. So how to live in the self And the self is eternal and therefore free from fear. Um, okay. It's, I'm, I'm just sharing with you an interesting phenomenon because when you usually see me in this class, I've been up for at least five hours of chanting and, and devotional activities. And yesterday was the latest thing. So I see that the, the memory doesn't work as well because usually when I'm speaking, it goes on many levels. I'm speaking, but I'm remembering the thoughts that my discussion was based on and also the thoughts where it was gonna go. Um, but I was determined, I don't like to miss, I missed Wednesday, so I was determined not to miss it again. Okay. I'll just go on to something else and maybe there's some things of value in this class. And I thought this point was really, where's my thing? I thought this was really interesting and I, I, I wanna mention this too. And it's just an interesting point, point in the story is, that's right, Devaki's in the heart and it can be seen. What's inside can be seen outside. For example, Krishna's smile is described as smitta. And there's two types of, of, of smile. One is hasya, where you're laughing, there's an external cause, your, your teeth can be shown. And one is smitta, where the smile is, your teeth is not shown, but, but the happiness is shown in your face. And um, with that smitta, um, it's from the joy inside someone's heart. And it's reflected in the face. The face is the index of the mind. I read about these psychologists that studied 360 muscles within the face. When they studied those muscles in the face, they understood what emotions were connected with, with what muscle? I mean, you can shut off a movie or something and understand so much by the expressions of the face that represent the mind. So what, what to speak that God is in the heart of, of Devaki? What is, what is her effulgence? 
We see that when people are happy, there's a certain effulgence, they shine. So when Kamsa saw that, and that was the eighth child, although by Narada Muni's visit to him, he, he said he was suspecting that there could be anyone. And therefore we know sometimes um, a dictator, you know, he's not sure who did it, so he maybe kills everyone. So Kamsa was like that, I'm not sure, but, that, but, the, but the eighth child was the prediction. And he was in such terrible fear. So he had a dilemma, damned if you do, damned if you don't. One, this child may kill me if he's born, but if I kill the child, I lose my reputation. And what is reputation? Reputation is a society's belief in one's character, competence, and productivity. That's what one's reputation is. And it's valuable because it's probably the most important thing for a person to attain one's goals is what others observe in them, especially in terms of their competency, their productivity, and their character. And generally, those things are not, those things generally in a proper society, they're earned. They're earned. by developing competency, by living up to one's principles, by proving trust in relationships. So the society, what would the society's belief be? Kamsa was thinking, you know, what would society's belief be in me? I know I'm powerful and I'm, I'm the controller. But what would the society's belief be in me if I killed my pregnant sister? And of course, he, he, he wasn't thinking, uh, you know, a person would think about his character. He, he, a person would be thinking in a principled way about that, that that was wrong. But he's not thinking in a principled way. He's just thinking uh, of, of him controlling and negotiating the world. You know, even, you know, I know in countries, even in, in, you know, some people here, maybe from the Middle East, the government doesn't, they're very careful how they crack down. Although they want full power, they also are concerned what people will think of them. They're also concerned with their reputation. You see this in countries. Sometimes they may, you know, not crack down on everything in the consideration that, you know, I, we don't want the people to think we're too oppressive. But at the same time, what their goal is, is to have complete power. So that was Kamsa's dilemma. So in, in choosing that, he said, no, this commodity of reputation, I know, you know, I can't go that far. People may have doubts about me. I may have opposition, et cetera, but there may be a limit before there's revolt. So even the dictators, they oppress, they oppress, but they, they may stop at a particular time. Weighing that how will this affect the society towards me in terms of my power? So he had to make that choice. But then he knew that this could be the child and he just couldn't stop. He just couldn't stop thinking. He just couldn't stop thinking that, 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 that the death of me is before me. And he saw it everywhere. 
And in my Japa seminar, I pointed out that this verse of Kamsa, just seeing Krishna everywhere by fear, of course, if you're inimical to Krishna, generally what happens is, um, like King Vena, then you don't see God at all and you go to hell. But somehow, Kamsa is in the Leela and you just can't stop thinking about Krishna. And I, I explained that this is such an interesting principle of why bhakti is the best. Of course, we think favorably, and we think favorably out of love, because love, to us been parma prema rupa, it's the highest form of, of love is bhakti. And bhakti is the most complete or consummate absorption in an object. We advance in spiritual life by our absorption in an object of Krishna. That's why, that's why bhakti is considered the highest. Bhakti is considered the highest. Um, Bhakti is considered yoginam bapisarve shammadgate nataratmanam shradhabam bhajateyo mamsamit. Of all yogis, one who worships me's faith and devotion is the highest of all. Why? Because there's a, an emotional, you can have a connection with an object by your will or understanding, and you can have it by your emotions or your heart. The emotions or the emotional connection with an object is much stronger. And the fact of the matter is, but Kamsa got some form of liberation. Anyway, um, you know, usually this week I take off from Monday morning greetings, but because I've given so many reprints uncharacteristically, and if there's one of all my bad qualities, one quality I have is this steadiness, like this class going on for 15 years and not canceling the class today, although it's in the middle of a retreat. But two things, I'm gonna to have to get on with my writing, but if any of you would like, uh, I can go over there and shut this off and arrange for Chumpak to put you on Jai Jagannath's class uh, and those of you that want it. But thank you. I'll be back to normal on. Um, I'll be back to normal on uh, next Wednesday and Friday. I have to find another kata. I'm contemplating two katas. One, the uh, Leela where Krishna goes to the Leela where Krishna goes to um, uh, Kurukshetra and, and, and Madharani goes and they meet. The other one is Buddha visiting Vrindavan. So I'm going to shut this off and uh, Shaking my head so Chumpik knows. So Chumpik's going to put on the class. There's a place called Kanai. I don't know precisely where I've said it in India. But while he's meditating in this way, creating the path, he's just creating the path. The Mahabharata is walking on this path, this beautiful path. And finally, he comes to a place called Kanai Natashala. When he gets to that place, his meditation breaks just like suddenly. So he's like, okay, what's going on? Again, he tries to do it, but he can't meditate past Kanai, not to Shalom. So at that time, he comes to realize that Mahaprabhu is not going to make it to Vrindavan. He said, because I'm not able to meditate past this location, when he gets to this location, there will be some issue or something will happen, then he will be forced to go back to Puri Dajna. So indeed, when Mahaprabhu was walking, when he arrives at Kanai, not to Shalom, there were like hordes of followers of Mahaprabhu that came that time. This time, I think Rupa Goswami and Sanatana Goswami, they meet Mahaprabhu that time. And the hordes of followers come that time. And when Mahaprabhu meets Rupa Sanatana, that time they're not called Rupa Sanatana. 
They're called the Bir Qasim, Sakla Malik. So that time they surrender to him, he initiates them. And I think Mahabharu asked Sanatana Goswami's opinion about his travel. Sanatana Goswami says, it's not good for you to come into brunch looking with so many followers. It looks very bad. It looks like very pompous, like you're trying to show yourself as a great sadhu or something. Maybe you should return and come back when you can come privately. So Mahabharu says, no, this is, it's all right. It's not a problem. But then after Sanatana leaves, he says, yeah, I think he's right. So he goes back to Puri. He doesn't make it past the nine, not the Shala. So Parapak comments about this, that how he was able to offer the devotional service only in his mind, because he was situated elsewhere. And he's making golden path and birds and all these things. And Mahabharu is accepting his devotional service to, to him. So how this is possible? So Parapak uh, in his commentary, I think this comes in the first chapter or second chapter of the Matulila. He comments about this. That, one, that someone may argue that he should give some practical service. What is this, this in the mind sort of service happening? So Prabhupada says, for Krishna, what is the difference between gross matter and subtle matter? Krishna is a transcendent entity. And whether it is gross pakriti, you know, like the objects that we could have touched, or whether it's subtle pakriti, it is pakriti only, it is matter. So what difference does it make if you offer God a physical apple or apple in the mind from his perspective? Actually, he has no relationship with Pakriti. He does not accept anything in Pakriti. And then Parapak posts a verse from Bhagavad Gita 926. What is that? Patram Pushpam If something is offered with, to Krishna with bhakti, then he accepts that bhakti-infused offering. Because he is Bhava Grahi Janardana, one who accepts the Bhava inside the devotee's heart, that he accepts that bhakti infused offering. So the apple is not accepted, the meditations themselves are not accepted in their own right, but infused with the devotional mood of the devotee, then it becomes accepted. So in that way, one can offer the apple practically. Of course, if you want to eat, it should be very practical. <laughs> you can offer from side of the mind, but you might go hungry. <laughs> so we have a habit of offering practically <laughs> when it comes to the eating part at least. But you could also offer it in the mind. And both are accepted by Krishna, provided it is used with the devotion. Another story is told in the Bhakti Rasa Mitra Sindhu. So we were, we've been talking Sadhana Bhakti over the weekend. So sadhana bhakti means kriti sadhya, we say, right? Kriti sadhya bhavet sadhya bhava sasadana So kriti sadhya means the actions of your body, mind, and senses. So the actions of the body, mind, and senses, as I was describing it, reconcile to the one purpose of attaining bhava, love. And what type of love? What type of love? What do you say? There's so many types of love there, right? Do you, what love you want? You want love of God? Anyone here? Okay, we're all obviously speaking theoretically here. But who wants love of God here? At least theoretically. <laughs> I don't work for it, but I do want it. <laughs> so if you want love of God, but what type of love of God you want? There are so many types to love of God. So you have to identify that also. So when all your body, your mind, and your speech is reconciled to the one purpose of attaining the love of God that you want, and this we describe as, as sadhana, bhakti. So since the sadhana requires the engagement of the body, mind, speech, so Rupa Goswami gets 64 angas of bhakti, sadhana bhakti, 64 angas. There are the nine main, which we must be familiar with, shravanam, kirtana, smarana, and so on. So Rupa Goswami takes those nine and he expands them into 64 categories. And so there's some angas for the body, there's some angas for the tongue, some angas for the eye, some angas for the nose, some angas for the ears, some angas for the touch, some angas for the, the tongue I may have already mentioned, and then there are angas for the mind. So if you go and see how he's divided the angas, if you go and see, how many of you have this book, Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, Banu Swami's edition? So you go see in the beginning of the um, chapter, he gives an outline. So go see, he's made it very easy for us to visualize all the angas, he divides it into angas for which part of the body. Because uh, the, the whole apparatus has to be reconciled to the sadhya. So you're going to need 
um, suggestions, how, well, how I, what should I look at? What should I hear? What should I smell? What should I touch? What should I think about? Isn't it? Otherwise there'll be some part that's not coherent with your purpose, right? Okay, my hand is coherent. You know, I always joke like this. <laughs> and then the next morning, you're like, where's my beanbag? Where's my beanbag? <laughs> so why, why is that happening? So you have the, the hand is reconciled to your purpose. You're touching the Japa bag. The tongue is being reconciled, but the mind is not reconciled. It's somewhere else. So in order to make sure that all aspects of our being, like our practical empirical being, is reconciled to our subject, Rupa Goswami gave me a lot of help. He's given suggestions. 64 Angas, when I first saw 64 Angas, I was like, oh my God, this is like Christianity. So many rules, oh my God. Especially when they get to the Seva and Nam Aparat, well, the Seva Aparat. If you read Prabhupada's Nectar Devotion particularly, Prabhupada's just integrated Jiva Goswami's commentary into Nectar Devotion. So when he's describing Seva Aparat, you know, Seva Aparat means the offenses to Deity. And then he's like, yeah, there's these 64 seva operas. I'm like, 60, how am I supposed to remember all of these? You know, don't walk in the tunnel with your shoes on. Don't wear blue and red. I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm like, I look good in red. <laughs> don't do this. Don't do that. So many angas. And then he said, and aside from these, in the Varapurana, there's another 64. And I was like, I closed the book, Dr. Devotion. I was like, oh, my God. They're like Christians, you know, rule, 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 rule. I didn't even pick up Nectar Devotion again until I read Ways of Devotion. And after I read Ways of Devotion, then Nectar Devotion came my favorite book. <laughs> after I was that, I said, like, oh, this is so beautiful. But without a teacher, without assistance, I couldn't appreciate. Um, so the Ways of Devotion was a critical, that was my first actually substantial encounter with you. I met you in 2007, Vrindavan. Chandra Mali Marsh introduced you to me. But um, I didn't talk to you again until 2016, um, after the whole Chicago thing. Yeah. But before that, I was reading Ways of Devotion. It had become my favorite book because of that Ways of Devotion. So Rupa Goswami is given all these angas of bhakti. He's like, so many rules, so many rules. No, it's not about the rules. It's about making our whole being coherent with our subject. Otherwise, there will be some part of our being that isn't coherent. That's going to create, it's like a, uh, like a clay pot with a crack in it. You may not see the crack, but if you pour the water in, drop by drop, all the water is dripping out and you don't realize it. And before you know it, where did my water go? You just see a big stain is there on the floor. So any part of our vein that's not coherent, it's like a little crack and it just drips out. So Rupa Goswami is giving all these angas just to make every part of our empirical being coherent with our actual sadhya. So there he also gives so many angas for the mind. Uh, many angas he is given for the mind. And in the context of describing the angas for the mind, he tells a story of one South Indian Brahmin who was extremely poor. So in his poverty, he was hearing some discussion from some local pundit or scholar about how to worship the Lord with so much paraphernalia. But he was very poor, so he was not able to do worship elaborately as such. So he went home and began to do the worship in his mind with all the paraphernalia. And in his meditation, he would make the sweet rice for Krishna and offer the sweet rice. Only in his mind, he was doing all of this. And it was accepted by Krishna because it was bhakti infused. So we've already told him the Sima Brahmachari story. So one point in the course of his meditation, he was so attentive in his meditation that after making these sweet rice, he said, I don't know if it is cool enough to offer to Krishna. So let me see if it is cool enough. Can you imagine? Only in the meditation, he was thinking like this. And my man was just like, all right, it's good. Okay, next activity. And his meditation, he's thinking, oh, the sweet rice might be too hot. Is it cool enough to offer to Krishna? So he went to check it in his meditation. If the sweet rice, so he stuck his finger or, you know, maybe took it with a spoon and touched it to see if it was cool enough. And when he touched it, his finger got burned. So he jumped out of his meditation and when he looked at his finger his finger was actually practically burned 
So he was like, what is going on here? I mean, that would be kind of scary. <laughs> low key, like, I would just try to think about it practically. Like, low key, you're just like, oh. <laughs> like what the heck is going on? I'll stop this meditation and then there's some voodoo going on. <laughs> he actually burned his finger. And then um, while, when he burned his finger, the Lord in the spiritual world, Narayana, he was worshiping. Narayana began laughing. And so Narayana, Lakshmi Devi's Narayana's consort, she said, why are you laughing suddenly? He said, I have one bhakta is there. He has offered me sweet rice in the meditation. And he wanted to see if it was cool enough. So he touched me, burned his finger. And he's a little astonished how he burned his finger because he was only offering in the meditation. And so he said, I'm giggling about that. And then he finally went and brought his devotee back home, which I, the Purana doesn't describe the events. Like, did he just like drop dead? Like... <laughs> Because it says the rhino went and brought him back to Godhead. So I was just like, was he like, <laughs> and back home, back to God? I don't know how they don't give all the details there. But this is an example of how he, the reason I'm telling the story, these stories, is, these are examples of how he engaged the imaginal space and service to Krishna. So this is a big, this is a big part of the spiritual practice. <clears throat> um, yeah, the re- as I was using this language yesterday, the retrieving of the imaginal space so that we can offer that in service to Krishna. So the essence of sadhana bhakti, actually we'll start from here. The essence of Bhagavad Gita, Krishna's teachings in Bhagavad Gita have three divisions, secret, more secret, most secret. His whole teaching, he says, you know, it's, Book frames, you say book frame by the subject matter of lamentation. Because his first his first statement is Ashochana Vashocha's tongue. This is his first statement. That you're lamenting for that which is not worthy of lamentation. This very first statement in Bhagavad Gita. Krishna's very last statement, don't lament. So the whole subject matter is kind of book framed around the subject matter of lamentation. Because that is relevant for the conditioned soul. We're always lamenting. And we cannot help ourselves but lament. Isn't it? Yasma priya apriya viyoga smyoga jarma shokagnina sakala yani shudhayama. Dugo shatam pa apidu pamata diyaham bumam pramami vadameta vadasa yoga. I was supposed to disperse his Palad marriage. So he says this in the material world, this is the experience. That what makes you happy, there be yoga, separation from that. And that which makes you unhappy, there is some yoga, complete union with that. And for this reason, you are always lamenting, always complaining, always crying. Isn't it? Yeah, always crying. As soon as we finish class, we will go to eat the prasad, drink the coffee. First thing I come out, man, the mosquitoes. <laughs> I got so many bites in the back. How they get all the way up there? Like I have pants on, what's going on? All they're talking, whatever comes out of the mouth, the story of lamentation is coming. Sakala Yonishu, this for all species, from the Indra Gopa all the way up to Brahma, this talk of lamentation. Shoka Agni Nadhayamana means their hearts are burned with the fire of lamentation. Then this is the real fun. That's not even the fun part. The real fun is this, Dukkha Oshadam. They try to find a remedy for their Dukkha, their suffering, but their remedies are themselves suffering. The remedy for dukkha is itself dukkha. Uh, so that someone has a breakup, that is dukkha. Then they go and get smashed at the club, that is also dukkha. Uh, so then they wake up the next morning and they're just like completely devastated. So like this, they say environmental crisis is there now, that is dukkha. And then they'll get some dukkha solution. And that way the living entities go on suffering more and more and more, adding pain to pain. Says because they also don't know that they're not the body. So they can't get to the root of their dukkha. So they keep adding more pain to pain. They travel the whole cosmos like this in this ignorance. He's praying to Nersema. He says, therefore, O Lord, Nersema, disengage me in your devotional service. So the point is that in Gita, the whole teaching is framed around lamentation because that is our main issue. We're always lamenting. So in the response to the lamentation issue, Krishna has given three divisions of teachings in the Gita. Secret teaching, more secret teaching, and most secret teaching. This is the three divisions he's given. 
in short, secret teaching relates to knowledge of Brahman, which includes within it knowledge of the self. More secret teaching relates to Paramatma and his relationship to the cosmos and the jiva. And most secret teaching relates to Bhagavan. And then Krishna says, Sarva Guhyatama, within the category of most secret teachings, of all the most secret teaching, which relates to Bhagavan, the topmost teaching is in relationship to me, Krishna, who is speaking the Bhagavad Gita. So then he says, this is the most secret teaching. You all know the most secret teaching? You all know it. You just, what is the answer? What is this most confidential secret teaching in Bhagavad Gita? The, the true answer to lamentation, which is how the Gita is kind of framed. What is the answer? You know? You can guess. So, what? Devotional service chanting. Krishna says, Mamana Papa Ma Bhakto Mamyaji Mamanaskuri, right? Devotional service is too generic answer. I don't know what you mean there. He says, uh, he says, so think of me, become my devotee, worship me, means deity, and do obeisances to me. So this teacher, he gives twice in Gita, and he says, this is his Paramavachaha, this is my supreme instruction, and my most secret teaching, all secret teachings. So you should think of me as a bhakta, because a lot of people think of Krishna, and the karmis also think of Krishna, the Gyanis think of Krishna, yogis think of So he says, become my devotee also. Worship me and offer obeisances to me. So the essence of all the Gita teaching is to remember Krishna. So when we do sadhana bhakti, we mentioned there are two types, Vaidhi and Raghunath, we've been touched. So the essence of both types of sadhanas is remembering Krishna. Smartavya satatam vishnu, vismartavya najatuche, sarvavidin shredashur. You know this verse? Because the Vaidhi Bhakti is informed by Vidis, right? So how do you follow? There's so many Vidis. You know, like I was saying, so many Vidis when you look at the Nectar Devotion, like there's too many Vidis. Put it on the shelf. Uh, so how do you follow the Vidis? So Rupa Goswami says the essence of following the Vidis is you, um, and Nishedas, he says they're all service of one Vidhi and one Nisheda actually. So what is it? It's actually only one Vidhi. What is the one vidhi to always remember Krishna? And the one prohibition is to never forget him. And all Sarva Vidhi Nishedasya, all these vidhis are servants of that one vidhi. And all the nishedas are servants of that one nisheda. Sri Vishwanath says something a little discouraging. He says, if you don't remember Krishna, then that's like breaking all the prohibitions. And if you remember Krishna, that's like following all the vidhis. So I was like, uh, that sounds a little heavy, <laughs> a little unfair. So the essence of following Vaidhi Bhakti is to remember Krishna. And in Raghunuga Sadan, what is the essence of that? Krishna Smaran, Janam Chasha, um, Nija, Prashtam Nija Samihita. The essence of that is to remember Krishna along with his dear associates who love him, whose love you are studying or emulating or inspiring your own bhakti. So in both cases, the essence is remembrance of Krishna. Uh, remembrance. So then remembrance has five divisions. There are five divisions of remembrance. One is called remembrance, <laughs> smarna. The second is called dharna. The third is called um, dhyana. The fourth is called anushmriti, anushmriti. And the fifth is called samadhi. These are the five stages of remembrance. So smarna just means remembering Krishna somehow or other, his name, his form, his qualities, his pastimes. Just in a generic way, you're remembering Krishna. Oh, I sometimes remember Krishna, sometimes remembering Nisinga, sometimes Bamandev, sometimes this one, sometimes somehow or other allowing your mind to just contact some relation with Krishna. This is called a smarna. Dharna means when you allow your mind to focus. Um, the word dharna or dharna means to hold. So you're allowing your mind, you're like holding a particular contemplation uh, of God. Because in Smarna, the mind is kind of wandering. So you just allow it to wander to here, wander to there, wander to the other place. 
in dharana you uh, you make the mind hold a particular meditation and dhyana dhyana is dharana but in dhyana you draw the mind to a specific form of bhagavan uh, ideally the form of bhagavan that is the object of your devotion this is called as dhyana so it is like dharana only you're holding it but you're concentrating on a very specific form of god then in Dhruva Anushmriti, Dhruva Anushmriti means like the meditation is pouring out like um, the example is given like honey coming out of the jar. There's no breakage in the meditation. A very kind of advanced stage of meditation. And the last is Samadhi. So in Samadhi, there's only the picture or the image of the object of meditation. You're not even aware of your own self in such an absorption state. Uh, it is self-forgiveness in the highest order, which is what love really is all about in one sense. Uh, since love means moving ourselves out of the center, sometimes we move out of the center, but we still think about ourselves, <laughs> so to speak. You know, like okay, I won't, I won't lead the program, but I think I could have led it nicely. You know, you're like, somehow you like allow someone else to come into the space, but still you are the, the center of it. So love in its highest reach or love as we're talking about it as samadhi means utter self-forgiveness. That, that is how you're able to cross the boundaries of, for example, social edicts. Like I'm thinking of, the, I'm remembering the gopis. How is it they're able to cross the, the boundaries of social edicts that govern the culture? They, ruin, they can risk their reputation. We were hearing about the importance of reputation over the weekend. How they can risk all of that is very difficult. If you're asked to risk your reputation, you would not do it. A very difficult thing to do. I, I had one friend when I joined Hare Krishna movement. We joined one friend, he was like a, we joined kind of at the same time. And at one point I didn't, we were like learning how to offer food together. And we were like, we were like friends. We were becoming friends too. Then I didn't see him for like a year. And then I was walking in the town where I grew up and I ran into this person. So I said, where did you, I say, oh man, how are you been? I haven't seen him in a long time. Where did you What's going on? So we had some small talk. Then I asked him like, where did you go? You know, we were, we were learning together, the bhakti, everything. So he had one wife and she was a Catholic and she was especially Catholic after he became a Hare Krishna. <laughs> you know how that works. When uh, like you meet the Christians, they're not even that Christian until they find out you are a Hare Christian, then they become especially Christian at that time. But she became especially Catholic after he became a Hare Krishna. But she gave one ultimatum to him that uh, you either do this Hare Krishna or you either, you know, you can stay with me as my husband or you do Hare Krishna, but you can't have both. So she gave ultimatum. And of course he chose her, which is... I mean, it's not bad, I guess. <laughs> you know, the devotees hear this story, we're all like, it's terrible. <laughs> what a calamity. <laughs> and and no one person was like, that makes sense, you know. <laughs> the devotees were just like, <laughs> how, could he leave, how could he leave Krishna? Anyway, so he chose his wife, whatever. Well, shame on um, her. Why did I bring that up? Yeah. So, um, wait, why did I bring that story up? What was the point I was making? <laughs> why? Um, they started together. And... Yeah, before that, I was making a particular point about um, samadhis. Yeah, the self-centeredness. So I was saying how the gopis were able to cross the bounds of social edicts that govern the Because in service of Krishna, it was total self-forgetfulness. This is what samadhi is, means that in your, in your inner world, you literally forget yourself because of the only the object remains, the object of meditation remains and the service to that object. So these are the five stages of remembrance. So in each of these stages of remembrance, there's increasing engagement of the imaginal world. Um, first, you're just allowing your mind or just wonder here and there to Krishna's name, foreign qualities, pastimes but then you're holding it, then you're zooming in on a specific form and specific pastime, specific associates, specific type of love. Then you're allowing your mind to just be kind of overtaken by that. And then at a certain point, it's just the love. It's just the object of love and that's it. And, and so our association with scripture, sacred texts, 
is to help give the, I want to say like the building blocks. This may not be the best way of articulating it. I've never tried to articulate this before. But our, part of our association with scripture is giving us the building blocks to build our imaginal space. Because you think in language. It's like interesting when people speak two languages, sometimes they think in one language and they curse in another. You know, I've heard this at least from people who speak two languages. They curse in one language, but they think in another language. It's like kind of interesting. Like I said, I'm a proper United States citizen. We only speak one language, American. It's not even English. <laughs> what do you say? Word. Word. <laughs> so with, so you, we use language to think. And then when, when you're thinking, what do you, how do you think? You use a language to build stories. That's why when you suffer, <clears throat> suffering is a co-creative process. It's kind of interesting. We don't think about it this way, but actually suffering is a co-creative process. There's what happens to you, but then there's how you interpret it. And that's where most of the suffering is coming from the interpretation. Otherwise, Parkshire Maharaj got cursed to die in seven days. He says, this is God coming in this particular form to take me to the bank of Ganga so I can hear Shema Bhagavatam. That was his interpretation of that. And he was experiencing joy. If you get cursed to die in seven days, how you feel about it? Anyway, so rhetorical question because we already know what the answer is. So suffering is actually a co-creative process, although we don't normally think of it like that. You have what happens to you and then you use a language to build a story about what happens to you in your mind. And that story becomes a prominent image by which your feelings are governed. And then you're taken in this direction or that direction. So scripture is trying to give us new language. They're trying to give us new archetypes who are the archetypes in scripture the primordial forms of devotion like kunti like Prahlad maraj like the gopis of vrindavan and the gopas of vrindavan these are the primordial forms or, or, or the primordial archetypes of devotion so to speak they're not just archetypes they're real entities but they're also archetypal for motivating our own bhakti so you're getting the language you're getting the stories you're getting the archetypes and with that, you can build your the images of devotion in your mind, which can then generate the feeling for Krishna. Um, so first, we get it in a generic way. So we hear classes, and generically, we're getting all the tools that we need to build our, our meditation life. But then, after you get that, then it is your responsibility to do that. Uh, you can once you are inspired to really do that work. Otherwise, what is the work? We think the work is just like Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. That is part of the work. But if you're Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna on the outside, but on the inside, empty-headed, that's not going to work. There's one verse that I like to quote a lot from, Shema Bhagavatam. Prithu Maharaj is teaching. When Prithu says this thing, Karmashayam Pratitam U. Yeah, Karmashayam so in this particular verse, he's teaching Pritu is hearing from the Kumaras. So Kumaras, they teach about Gyan for most of the teachings, but they end with Bhakti. And this is the first verse they said. They said the Santaha, the devotees, are able to untie the strong knot of karma filled with the impressions of ego by devotion to the lotus toes of Krishna. Uh, so there's a strong knot of ego in the heart, right? That's what makes us not able to think of God. Um, we only think of ourselves. We call karmashaya. karmashaya. The karmashaya, this also mentioned in Yoga Sutra, karmashaya means the storehouse of all the impressions. It's called karmashaya. So all the experiences that we've ever had in the material world, and we've been in the material world like basically forever. So there's a lot of experiences. All the imprints are kept somewhere. It's called the karmashaya. And then when you get a certain type of body with a certain type of ego, certain imprints get activated and they come to the surface of the waking life. And then they influence, latently influence how we move in the world. So very hard to break that. It's like a Gordian knot. You know this Gordian knot thing? Have you heard of the thing Gordian knot? Gordon, I think the history is, what's his name? Alexander the Great. 
So apparently there's some myth around this that whoever was able to untie the Gordian knot, they would become the ruler of the, the land. So they took Alexander to, you know, to the knot and said, here's a Gordian knot. Now the, the knot is itself made like out of leather. Then they would like pour water on the knot periodically so that it would like get wet and then dry and then it would become more tight. So no one would, who could untie such a thing? It would be impossible. So they brought it to Alexander and said, I can untie the thing. They said, okay, you good, try. Took out his sword. Ouch. And all right, he can conquer this place. <laughs> no one else thought to do that. He thought to do it. So Gordian Nada is like that very hard not of ego filled with the impressions of all our different lives. How are you supposed to think of someone other than yourself or the empiric self is basically impossible. But the devotees are able to easily untie this knot by their devotion to Krishna. Huh? Devotion to Krishna means by their remembrance of Krishna. And why we say remembrance? Because the next line says, Even Others who are yetis, yeti means like the sannyasis and the ganis and the yogis, their yetis means they like control their senses or all sides to their gan or to their yoga. Yetayoapi, although they are ganis, yogis, and so on, others, they are not able to do it because they are riktamataya. Riktamataya means empty-headed huh? because they don't think of Krishna. They're not interested in that. They give Krishna. So they remain without, they remain like without substance inside. And therefore, Shotoganas. Therefore, although they're trying to conquer over the senses, they become swept up by the riptide of sense gratification because there's nothing inside the mind to, to resist the riptide of, you know, riptide, like it pulls you under. So the riptide of the sense objects, it just pulls them under because they're empty-headed. So we don't want to be like the yogis and ganis who remain empty-headed. Hand in the bead back, but mind empty-headed. And then it'd be very hard to resist. So Shastra is giving us all the tools we need to build our, our meditation world, our imaginal space. But after you get all the tools, then it's your responsibility to do that. That is a hard work. And as you try to do that, this is where, why the association of sadhus and gurus becomes so critical at this point. First, you hear from guru about tattva, so that you have a proper conceptual orientation, reality, and so on. But that is just, that's the easy part, actually, which is also hard. <laughs> As we've been saying over the weekend, to learn is itself a great difficulty, just to keep the mind the focus and all of that. But that is actually the easy part. The hard part comes when you actually start trying to build your meditation life. That time, you will need a lot of assistance and guidance how to do it. And so for Guru is required for that also. Uh, so sometimes we divide it as Shravan Guru. You hear this division sometimes. Shravan Guru, Bhajan, Shikshu Guru, Dikshu Guru. Now, usually it is one person who is performing all the functions, but sometimes it can be several persons also. Like Kaviraj Goswami, he was initiated by Nityananda Prabhu, Diksha Mantra, he got. But he was a Shiksha, Bhajan Shiksha disciple of the six Goswamis. So at the end of Chaitanya Charitamrita, he's always remembering Rupa Raghunath specifically. So sometimes there is, the functional group may be divided into different persons. So Shravan Guru means a guru that you hear the tattva from. Uh, so there may be many, usually it's best to have one or two only, <laughs> a few so you don't get confused. Shravan Guru is you can hear the metaphysics. But after you hear the metaphysics, then bhajan shiksha guru requires someone who can help you with your bhajan, help build your meditation and culture. But with what? With, with all the tools that have been given to us, the shastra. They've given us language. They've given us the stories. They've given us the, the archetypes. They've given us the basically the images that can invoke the feelings needed to pull us out of this material energy and towards Krishna. So all the exercises that we've done over the weekend is to help give some appreciation of this, some insight of this and some appreciation of this um yeah for for yeah building our own our own taking up that responsibility otherwise sometimes people come to wonder we else, ourselves also come to wonder what is the work in devotional service but it, this is actually the hard work of devotional service chanting 16 rounds is the easy part which is also hard <laughs> uh i keep saying the easy part is also hard but that is the easy part 
you know, to get the tongue to go, you know, move um, is easy enough. It's hard also, it is easy enough, but to get the mind to match the name that you're chanting. Are you chanting the name of your beloved, the name of your child, the name of your friend, the name of your master? Whose name are you chanting? You have to get the mind to connect to that. For example, that's just an example. Otherwise, you're just chanting a name and they'll have no meaning for you. Then after so many years, you're like, I don't know, I don't know if I'm getting anything for this. Now, these doubts start to creep up and sabotage you. So everyone has to figure out, at some point we have to figure this out. Am I chatting the name of my beloved, the name of my friend, the name of my child, the name of my master? Something. So we have done these different exercises in order to help inspire them. So when you're reading Shastra, especially when you're reading the epiphanies of the devotees and they're giving their heart, you know, connecting to their sukirtan, their, their, the song of their epiphany. And transcreating that song in your mind as an image. That's why we gave this exercise. Inspired uh, by Narsima Brahmachari, or the South Indians, or by these five stages of remembrance and the culture of, by the essence of all advice or the uh, most secret knowledge of Bhagavad Gita. All these things are all linked to each other in order to inspire this. Okay, so I'm going to stop there. I did the best that I could. Yeah.